Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome back to this week's episode of Mill Liberty. I'm your host, Caleb Friends. This is the voice of liberty for a new generation. I'm thrilled to have you here this week. This week, we have a really good treat for you because I think this is one of the more uh, thoughtful episodes that we have done. Um, this week, I am joined by Mike Meharry of the Tenth Amendment Center. He's the National Communications Director for the organization. Uh, and he joined me to discuss a topic that we haven't really, we touched on it a little bit here and there um, in other episodes, but we have never really devoted an entire episode to this. And that is um, nullification and the quickest path to liberty, the, the path that doesn't require the federal government's permission, and you we never have. And this is something that we always we always look to the federal government for um, all of our answers. Even libertarians fall in this trap many times. We always look to the federal government and say we need to get things done through Congress. Well, on this episode, we're going to be saying, well, no, we don't. We don't actually need to go through Congress to get these things done. Actually, it's most effective if Congress is the very last one to acquire the change and you get it done through the states and the localities first. That's what we're going to be talking about here. We cover um, what nullification is. We define it real quick and, and we cover what the Tenth Amendment Center does. Uh, in their work as an organization. Then we go into some of the things such as um, what Jeff Sessions recently announced concerning um, states that have legalized marijuana within their own states and how uh, states can respond back to him. And then also we cover with a lot of what the has been going on recently in Congress uh, concerning FISA courts and, and warrantless surveillance and and all of this, there's been a lot of discussion on, on surveillance recently in the Fourth Amendment. Well, I talk with Mike about how we don't need the federal government to change their ways in order to achieve, um, in order to restore the Fourth Amendment in, in the United States. And, and he explains a, a really fascinating way, and I, I it really makes me excited just thinking about the some of the ways that we, we can restore the Fourth Amendment that I never even thought about. So, without further ado, I want you to sit back and relax and please just absorb everything um, in this episode because it really is a really fun and really educational episode. So sit back, relax, and enjoy my interview with Mike Meharry. All right, Mike, welcome to the program. It's good to have you here on the Liberty. Well, I sure do appreciate it. Well, I appreciate you coming on. Um, I would like for you to initially um, just tell us, for those who don't know, tell us a, a little bit about yourself, a brief history, and then also tell us a little bit about the the Tenth Amendment Center and um, what it is doing to uh, to help protect liberty. Well, I am the uh, National Communications Director for the Tenth Amendment Center, and I've been in that position for oh, something like seven years now. Long enough where I can't remember how long it's been. Um, and uh, I'm a journalist by training, so I worked in the newspaper world for a while. I was a sports editor. I've worked in uh, TV news and abandoned all that eventually. And now I do this kind of activism part-time, and I also do some uh, marketing work to you know, help pay the bills because, unfortunately, liberty is not a high-paying gig. So you know, No, not always. <laughs> not as much as – Certainly, we would like it to be. 
My wife teases me. She says I could make a fortune if I was like a mainstream Republican or right. Democrat. Yeah. <laughs> but where um, all the money is exactly. But I wouldn't be able to sleep at night, so there would be that problem. Right. Anyway, I, uh, I like I said, I've been with the Tenth Amendment Center for six years, and the Tenth Amendment Center is actually now going on. Uh, this is our eleventh year, so it was founded in two thousand six. And I like to just sum up what we do with kind of a mantra. It's follow the Constitution, every issue, every time, no exceptions, no excuses. So we are 100% focused on constitutional fidelity, which interestingly tends to make everybody mad at some point. Right. Uh, you know, the, the left is always mad at us. And uh, quite honestly, I think a lot of times the, the right is just as mad at us as, as the left, especially when they're in power. Right. And then even libertarians get mad at us because I think there's a there's a little bit of a tendency in some libertarian circles to want to use the federal government to impose liberty from top down. And the Constitution wasn't designed to do that. Uh, the Constitution was really uh, ratified and understood at the time of ratification to be a rather limited document in terms of the powers that were given to the federal government. Most authority was meant to be left to the states and to the people. And as a result, the federal government was really not to have much influence at all in our life. And as we all know, we've flipped that system completely on its head. Now the federal government does virtually everything from telling us what kind of plant we can grow in our backyard to how much water we can have in our toilet to uh, what kind of light bulbs we can screw into our light fixtures. So we have an absurd system now that has been completely centralized at the top. And the American system was initially uh, envisioned as a decentralized system where power was dispersed through various political societies. And I think decentralized power is the key to liberty. I think the more you concentrate power at higher levels, the more danger that you have of creating opportunities for tyranny and uh, overreach and government control in our lives. And people will say, well, you know, Mike, uh, you know, state governments and uh, local governments, they're horrible too. And uh, of course, I absolutely agree with that. Uh, you will get no argument from me. It's not that we believe that the states are somehow better or that the local governments are better. We just simply believe that in, as you would have in economics, monopolizing power in one place is what creates problems. Nobody would want to have, uh, you know, uh, Walmart to be the only place that you could buy groceries in the United States. Everybody would freak out, especially the left, which I find ironic right. because they're the first ones that want to monopolize power at the federal level. Uh, so. We view the Constitution as ratified as a decentralizing force. It's a positive for liberty, and we insist on focusing on that no matter what the issue is. So we don't really look at it so much issue-wise. We look at it, what power does the federal government have to act in this area? And fortunately for those of us who care about liberty, the answer in most every case is none. So uh, our work is kind of flows in two different streams. We have kind of an educational aspect of what we do where we do a lot of writing, a lot of research. We read a lot of legal papers. We write a lot of articles relating to capitalism because most Americans have absolutely no idea what the Constitution was meant to be or what powers the federal government is and is not supposed to exercise. So uh, there's always education that needs to be done. And then the other side of our work involves activism, and that's actually working at the state level to create ways to limit federal power 
using state power against it. And we call this nullification, which is a principle that goes all the way back to James Madison and Thomas Jefferson. Most people uh, tend to think that it has something to do with being racist or owning slaves, which neither of those things is true. Uh, in fact, nullification, actually one of its most historically effective applications was during the 10 years leading up to the, uh, I use civil war in air quotes, but uh, right. leading up to the war between the states when northern states actually refused to cooperate with the Fugitive Slave Act, and uh, especially in far north and in New England, effectively ended fugitive slave rendition by just simply refusing to cooperate with the federal government. So we take that model, which is actually something Thomas Jeff, or, um, excuse me, James Madison laid out in Federalist 46. He said, when the federal government has unwarrantable acts, one of the things that we can do, the primary strategy he recommended was a refusal to cooperate with officers of the union. So we look for ways that states can refuse to cooperate with officers of the union. And the beauty in this is that the Supreme Court has actually upheld this principle, which is like the only thing the Supreme Court has ever done right in all of history. Well, <laughs> I exaggerate because I don't pay a whole lot of attention to what the uh, politically connected lawyers in black dresses do. But right. in this case, they actually have created a legal framework that allows states to refuse to cooperate. And the, the Supreme Court has held since 1842 that the federal government cannot force states to utilize their resources or personnel to implement any federal pro programs or enforce federal laws. So anytime there's a federal law that's being enforced, if the state and local government is helping to enforce it, they don't have to do that. And the states can prohibit it completely. And when you take away state and local support, it makes it very difficult for the federal government to do anything because it simply doesn't have the mass. And uh, I'm sure we'll get into that a little bit more as we start talking about uh, marijuana and, and some of these more specific issues. Certainly. So that's kind of the that's kind of the the uh, the bullet point version of the Tenth Amendment Center. I, I encourage everybody to visit the website tenthamendmentcenter.com and you spell out tenth. And right now, if you go to our blog, you will see three to five to more articles every day, simply outlining outlining bills that are being introduced in state legislatures that are designed at targeting some type of federal power. Last year, we had somewhere between 450 and 500 bills that we were tracking by the end of the session. So uh, there's a lot of stuff going on right now, and we really encourage people to check that out and get involved at your uh, in, in your own state. When you see these bills pop up and you live in that state, that's an opportunity for you to get on the phone and call committee members, call your state representative, your state senator, and put some pressure on them, because I will guarantee you they will pay a lot more of attention to you than your senator or your congressman in Washington, D.C. Um, so I, I do want to touch on a little bit of what you were just talking about with nullification, um, because uh, for some people that's, that's either a dirty word or they don't know what it is. Um, and they might think, oh, that's going to lead to like some sort of a war or violence or civil unrest if you just simply, you know, if you just have states doing whatever they want. So uh, address some of those concerns for me real quick. Sure. It's interesting because if you look at nullification historically, uh, the people that advocated it in the, uh, you know, in the early years, in the 1800s, they actually called it the moderate middle road. Uh, <laughs> it was the road between absolute subservience to the federal government and outright revolution. Mm -hmm. So it actually creates a pathway to avoid violence, because when you think about it, you've, you've got this this federal government and 
it's supposed to be limited, and there's absolutely no debate about that. If you look at the ratification of the document, you look what all the people said it was going to be. It was supposed to be limited. So that raises the question. If it is supposed to be limited and it goes outside of those limitations, what's supposed to stop it? Well, most people, oh, the Supreme Court, but the you absurdity very quickly when you remember that the Supreme Court is part of the federal government. Right. So it's and absurd that, to think that the federal government is going to limit the federal government. I mean, it's very rarely it's just, ever, ever actually uh, it, exactly. leans on the side of liberty there. Right. So there had to be some mechanism. And over and over again, they said the founding founding generation, they said that the process and the check against federal power were state actions. And again, Read Federalist 46. Madison lays this out. He talks about a refusal to cooperate with officers of the union. That's a direct quote from what Madison wrote. So this is what they expected. This is how the system is supposed to be. And this idea that it's going to create a war or you know that the federal government's going to roll tanks into the street, it's not going to do that. It it never has. It's kind of a you know, it's kind of a scare tactic in a way. And you know, I look at it this way. We want there to be – everybody loves the idea of checks and balances in, in the, the federal system. You know, we learn about it from the time we're in about sixth grade when we start taking civics, you know, and, the, and you've got the judicial branch and the legislative branch and the, and the executive branch, and you're all supposed to kind of have this uh, adversarial relationship with each other, and it, and it checks power. Well, the state is just another check, but it's a instead of it being a horizontal check, it's a vertical check. And it is absolute necessity in the system because without it, you have a federal government that essentially claims the authority to do whatever in the heck it wants to. And that's not a good thing, no matter who you are. And everybody at some point realizes it. You know, it's funny when when Trump was elected because all of a sudden, all of these people on the left that had been opposing our work for the last eight years, all of a sudden are like, oh, the states need to do something to check Donald Trump. Well, you know, you just spent the last eight years giving Washington, D.C. all of this power in the first place. So, you know, I, I don't think there's nearly the, the, the danger that people want to uh, make it out to be because it has been historically applied over and over again. I can, you know, we can talk about numerous examples that are going on right now. And the federal government's a political entity. And for, for however much power it has, it does respond to political pressure. And a lot of the things that it does are bullying tactics and, uh, you know, smoke and mirrors and, and things that are designed to cow us into submission. But when you actually push back and when enough people push back and when the the wave of popular opinion goes against it, it will ultimately bend uh, to some degree to the will of the people. So, uh, you know, th this idea that it's a dirty word, no, all, you know, many of our founding uh I hate the word founding fathers because it sounds so trite, but so I usually use founding generation. But many people in the founding generation advocated this kind of, of adversarial relationship between the state and the federal government. I think it's a proper part of our political system and a necessary part to avoid having, uh, you know, complete dominance by the central authority. Um, one of the things that you mentioned about about the left is uh, <clears throat> when they when they love to advocate for for more government power until they lose all that power of course and the inverse happens with the right of course i think that's so funny because like even with something like you know sanctuary cities whether it's a good policy or a bad policy that to me seems in effect to be a form of nullification where the states are saying no we're not going to abide by this um can you real quick one of the one of the you know rebuttals to that is 
oh, the supremacy clause. It's it's obviously more important. It, it says federal law trumps state laws. Can you explain the dynamic between the supremacy clause and the Tenth Amendment? Sure. I think the biggest problem is most people that cite the supremacy clause do exactly what you just did, and they leave out the most important word in the supremacy clause, or uh, not just a single word, but uh, a couple of words. You know, the supremacy clause actually reads that this Constitution and the laws and treaties that are made in pursuance thereof are supreme. So, in other words, anything that is within the powers of the federal government that the federal government does, that is supreme. So, uh, you know, obvious things, the post office. When the post office does the post office, the post office is supreme uh, because there it is in the Constitution. But anything that is not made in pursuance of the Constitution is not supreme. In fact, Alexander Hamilton, I love quoting Alexander Hamilton because Alexander Hamilton was a snake and he was probably – the biggest advocate of national power in the founding generation. It's right. what he really wanted. And I honestly think that Hamilton pretty much lied his way through the ratification process, knowing that he could get this put in place and use it to his benefit. I, I think I think he's one of the – I think a lot of people were sincere when they talked about the limits on federal power. I don't think Alexander was in the least bit sincere. But we can use what he said. Very effectively, because we know that this was a way for uh, the Constitution to be sold, because if the majority of people didn't believe what Hamilton and them were saying, the Constitution would have never been ratified, which goes to show that people wanted this limited government. Madison or uh, Hamilton said that any law that is not made in pursuance of the Constitution, that you cannot find a delegated power for a law or an act of the federal government, he said it is void. That was the exact word he used, is void. It is not a law at all. It doesn't exist, and it should be treated as such. And that's what Thomas Jefferson was getting at in the Kentucky Resolutions when he was actually talking about nullification. He said these laws are void and of no effect, and so nullification is the rightful remedy. And uh, real quick, I'm, uh, let me explain what nullification is because, like you said, a lot of people don't really understand what the word means. Yes, there's, actually, there's actually two ways to look at nullification. You can look at nullification in a legal sense. So uh, the Supreme Court strikes down a law. It nullifies it. It wipes it off the books. It's completely gone. So there's a legal sense of nullification. But there's also a practical sense of nullification, and that's basically just to make something uh, of no effect or uh, you know unenforceable or simply not in operation. So we do that almost every day when we go out on the highway. We drive 65 miles per hour, and the little <laughs> speed limit sign says 55. We've just nullified the 55-mile-an-hour speed limit. Right. And the fact of the matter is, yes, the, the police can enforce that to a small degree. But when you have the whole flow of traffic going 65 miles an hour, there is absolutely no way that the powers that be can make that traffic go slower, I guess, unless they – you know, go to the extreme of blocking a highway or something. So that is nullification in effect. The law is still on the books. The law is still in operation, but in effect, it is ineffectual. And when we talk about nullification at the Tenth Amendment Center, generally that's what we're talking about. We don't really care if the law is on the books or not. We just care whether or not the federal government can enforce it. And if they can't enforce it and it has no effect, then ultimately it's going to wither on the vine, so to speak. And, and in all likelihood, it will go away. And we actually saw that happen with the speed limit back in the, in the 1980s when no state was in compliance with the uh, federal 55-mile-an-hour speed limit mandate. And instead of doing what the law said and taking away all of these states' highway funds, the Congress just quietly raised the speed limit. So <laughs> – 
Yeah, there, there's there's a great deal of power in this in this nullification process, and we're seeing it more and more as we apply it to different uh, policy areas. Um, so let's talk about a, a few of those uh, policy areas. The the one I want to touch on first, um, just I believe it was just last week or uh, the week before that, um, Jeff Sessions, uh, the Attorney General, announced that he was going to begin to enforce more of um, the the marijuana laws on the books at the federal level and that had a lot of people worried about the the you know the state or the jeopardy of states that have uh, in effect legalized marijuana uh, in within their own states so what in your view can the states do to make sure that that whatever Jeff Sessions decides to do it becomes not really that important well, first off, I'm just going to say that Jeff Sessions is full of hot air because he's not going to do anything. <laughs> that's, that's the bottom line. Jeff Sessions is not going to do anything. And, you know, you mentioned a second ago how, how the, both the left and the right uh, suddenly embrace the Constitution when they're out of power and then they reject it when they're in power. It's just I the natural Jeff, flow of, it, it of, is. of power, yeah. But I think Jeff Session is like the worst brand of Republican. Mm -hmm. He is no different than Nancy Pelosi in that he doesn't give two shreds about the Constitution uh, when it comes to what is clearly an unconstitutional federal intrusion into state sovereignty and power. But he's got this weird fetish about marijuana. So he, right. you know, he wants to enforce the laws on weed. So it's like you know, the left whenever they were complaining about deficits after the tax bill, like since, exactly. since when have you ever cared about deficits? Right, exactly. It's actually, it's actually amusing if it wasn't so sad. Right. So here we have Jeff Sessions. And I, I think there's a couple of layers of this we need to unpeel to uh, unpeel for people to understand. First, even from a practical standpoint, what Jeff Sessions actually did isn't really that big of a deal in the the big scheme of things. And it's interesting because when it first came out, I saw the first place that I saw this reported was CNN. And he called it a seismic shift in policy. It was no such thing. So here's the deal. In the second term of Obama, uh, the attorney general at the time issued what's known as the Cole uh, Directive. And the Cole Directive essentially said, OK, here's how we're going to handle or here's how we think you prosecutors in the various states should handle marijuana where it's legal in your state. And it said basically we're advising that you take a hands-off approach unless it involves these uh, eight to ten issues, and in which case we think you should enforce it. So, uh, you know, it was things like uh, keeping marijuana out of the hands of kids, keeping it from going across state lines, uh, the, the big cartels, those type of things. Mm -hmm. So this is a policy directive. The prosecutors still have absolute di discretion to enforce the law however they wanted to, even under the Obama scheme. OK, so a prosecutor could go after a federal prosecutor could go after some dude with an ounce of weed in his back pocket if he wanted to. So he never had any more or less discretion than he has now. So basically what uh, Sessions did, and this is all this has been a, a kind of a thing that the Trump administration has done. They go out and they make these big announcements and everybody's like, oh, my gosh, she's doing these huge changes. And when you look at the actual policy, it doesn't change anything. Right. So Sessions came along and he said, OK, we're scrapping all of this stuff in the coal directive and I'm directing you prosecutors to prosecute at your own discretion. 
Well, that's what they were doing before. <laughs> now they just don't have any guidelines that they can follow and look at and go, oh, yeah, here's kind of what the what, you know, Big Brother up there on uh, in Washington, D.C. So from a practical standpoint, what has changed is the prosecutors had discretion to prosecute marijuana laws however they wanted to, uh, being guided by these certain criteria. And now they have the discretion to prosecute marijuana laws however they want to uh, and guided by their own heart of hearts. <laughs> so, you know, when you, when you break it down that way, you realize that this was really just a, a, a some political posturing. It was some hot air. It was a way from, for Sessions to get out there. And, and you know, I can say I'm tough on drugs and uh, and nothing really fundamentally is going to change. And I, and I want to add something else real quick here that a lot of people don't realize because a lot of people have this idea that the only reason that all of these states have been able to legalize marijuana over the last several years is because Obama didn't care and Obama didn't enforce the law. But a dirty little secret is for the first four years of Obama's uh time in office, so his first term, he actually spent more money on marijuana enforcement than Bush and Clinton combined. Hmm. So it wasn't that Obama didn't care about enforcing marijuana laws. It's that they spent all of this time and energy and money trying to enforce marijuana laws and realized this ain't working. So we might as exactly. So we might as well come up with some type of policy uh, to kind of direct our resources in ways that maybe they will provide some, uh, you know, some useful benefit. Hmm. So, but Let's let's set all of that aside. So now realizing that nothing's really changed, let's pretend that Sessions could come in and he could demand that we're gonna we're gonna crack down on the Colorado. We're we're coming after you, Colorado. We're gonna get your weed. Even if he wanted to do that, the federal government does not have the personnel and resources to enforce marijuana laws in Colorado. It simply doesn't, unless it has the support of state and local law enforcement. And that is the power of states legalizing marijuana, because when states legalize, then that pulls the state and local enforcement out of the picture, and it leaves it to the federal government to enforce prohibition all on its own. So just to give you an example, when Colorado legalized recreational marijuana, uh, about six weeks before it was supposed to go live, the federal government did what they called a huge enforcement operation on medical marijuana dispensaries in Colorado. So they raised, uh, they raided, I think it was 12 dispensaries in the Denver area. And they spent all this money and they made these arrests and you know they made it, they flexed their muscles and they you know how to go on TV and show you pictures of the of the deadly weed that they've managed to <laughs> confiscate. And so they did all of that and. You know, this is a huge enforcement effort. And everybody knew that this was kind of a, uh, you know, we're sticking our chest out and we're showing you that we're not going to let you guys just run over us. You know, we're still in charge here, right? So then some people started doing the math on how much it actually costs because they actually released the figures on how much they spent on this enforcement effort. And when you start crunching the numbers, as it turns out, it would take like half of the DEA's annual budget just to investigate and shut down the medical marijuana dispensaries in Denver, Colorado. That's one city in one state. Half of their budget for a year to do that. Then wow. when you realize that you know, you've got California and you've got all these other states, so they don't have the resources. And it's, it's an FBI statistic show that 99 out of 100 marijuana arrests are made under state law, not federal law. So if a state legalizes marijuana, you've taken away 99% of the rationale for arresting people for marijuana. So the bottom line is that 
no matter what Jeff Session wants to do, no matter how much he wants to maintain prohibition, when states decide we're not going to do this, we're not going to participate in enforcement, we're going to do it anyway. And when you've got enough people that are saying, you know what? I don't really care about what the law says. I'm going to smoke me some weed. Right. The federal government doesn't have the power to overcome that. And so you can take this model. Here's the beauty of it. You can take this model and you can apply it to so many different issues. Any place where the federal government is trying to enforce a law and the state and local government is helping with it, you can pull that state and local enforcement away and you suddenly pull the rug out from under federal enforcement. Now, you know, some people will say, well, Mike, you know, you don't realize how how much pain that the federal government can cause. I, I do understand that. And, you know, when you look at the evolution of the marijuana movement in California when they first legalized medical in 1996, I mean, they were aggressive in their enforcement and it caused a lot of people a lot of pain. They would go in and they would shut these mar medical marijuana businesses down. They would take all their. But the amazing thing was these people were so committed to what they were doing. They were so resilient. A lot of times they'd be open again in a week. So. <laughs> You know, at some point you got to have an attitude of I want to do this. I don't really give a crap what your puny little law says. And uh, so that's kind of the, the cool thing. We actually – marijuana, we consider that kind of the, the modern uh, proof that nullification can and does work because we right. now have 30 states that have medical marijuana. In fact, the uh, uh, another thing that a lot of people don't know is that the Congress has actually defunded any prosecution of medical marijuana users as long as they're following their state laws. So even if Sessions wanted to crack down on medical marijuana, the prosecutors can't because they're not allowed to spend the money. And uh, Congress actually uh, it was that was supposed to sunset this year. Congress reapproved it when they did their last uh, uh, budget extension, and now of course we have to, until what Friday? I think we're going to shut down the government again. But right, yeah. It seems pretty likely that this is going to, despite what Sessions wants, Congress has no desire to prosecute people who are using medical marijuana. So you have 30 states with medical marijuana legalized. You have eight states that have legalized it for recreational use. That genie is out of the bottle, and the federal government can talk about a, a prohibition, enforcing prohibition all it wants to. But the fact of the matter is uh, marijuana prohibition isn't any more real than uh, alcohol prohibition. The only difference is, is that the federal government actually did – a constitutional way and got an amendment to uh, enforce alcohol prohibition, whereas uh, with marijuana, they just it's basically decided we're going to do this. Right. Exactly. <clears throat> so um, if it just with the fact given that, you know, um, he doesn't really have too much authority to do that, despite that, do you think that this will kind of have a backlash effect from states and, and maybe even from, from people in uh, from uh, Congress to push it through to where it becomes more um, available and more legalized as as the years go on. Yeah, I definitely do. And and that's kind of the, you know, when you start looking at, at big picture strategy, uh, we, we're looking at trying to do the same thing that a lot of people are doing, but we're taking a bottom-up approach instead of a top-down approach. So instead of calling Congress and you know suing through the Supreme Court or uh, you know petitioning and marching on Washington D.C., we're saying take a local and state strategy, and as you have success at that level, it starts to bubble up 
to the federal level. So, you know, like I said, we have this situation where Congress has defunded prosecution of medical marijuana users in states where it's legal. That would have never happened if the states hadn't taken the first step to legalize medical marijuana. So when the policies start changing at the state level and you see more and more states piling on, then it starts to trickle up to the federal level. And that's when the the political realities start to come in on Washington, D.C. So I wouldn't be a bit surprised if at some point in the next, I don't know, you know, I don't have any idea how long, but let's say 10 years. It wouldn't surprise me if in 10 years marijuana is legal in the United States from a federal perspective and, and then it's left to the, the states to decide how they want to uh, regulate it within their own borders. So the the process is from the top up. So we definitely want to see change in Washington, D.C., but we just don't think you're going to get it by – trying to get changed to Washington, D.C. Right, not by starting there, but... Right, after, exactly. But, yeah, because with if you just start in Washington, then there's no basis behind it. Whereas if exactly. you start at the, at the local and state levels, then you have so much of a foundation that it becomes just inevitable. Right, and we're seeing the same thing with industrial hemp, which is e- an even more absurd prohibition than marijuana. Right, you know, you yeah. You can't even get no high kidding. on hemp, and it's got, what, 26,000 <laughs> industrial uses, and we import the stuff from China and Canada, and yet we can't grow it here in the United States. But, you know, with in 2014, they kind of cracked the door a little bit, and now you can uh, do – you can grow hemp legally if you have a research program, and the states have kind of – even the states that have tried to follow the federal law, most of them aren't compliant. So they're kind of pushing the borders. And you've got states like Colorado and, uh, and California, of course, and Oregon uh, that have basically said, we're going to create our mer- uh, hemp programs in you know, pfft, whatever federal government. You can do what you want to do. Right. So you know, it's the exact same process. But we're all, now we're seeing a, a pretty strong push with some folks in Washington, D.C. to legalize industrial hemp. And again, I think that the pressure coming up from the bottom up from the state level is what is making that possible. Um, so let's, let's shift to another uh, policy uh, area that I think is perhaps even more interesting to consider the possibilities of what the states can do. You have uh, talked about um, what the states can do in regards to surveillance and uh, the NSA uh, quite a bit. And obviously recently um, there are certain people in Congress, a bipartisan group of people in Congress actually, of um, you know people from Rand Paul to uh, Ron uh, Wyden uh, going out and saying we're going to try to, to keep the federal government from doing things that is not within its power, not within its authority within the Fourth Amendment. Um, and I obviously I support that and I, I hope that that works, but what you talk about on the state and local level I think is is really fascinating. So can you talk about what what the states can do in regards to surveillance? Yeah, absolutely. And this is actually kind of my one of my personal policy areas that I've been most deeply involved in. Mm -hmm. And it's really interesting as I have learned about surveillance in the surveillance state, just how much we have effectively created a national police force. And there's a lot of moving pieces that go into this. A lot of it has to do with the drug war. A lot of it has to do with the war on terror. But what has happened is the federal government has used funding and the availability of cool toys 
uh, you know, like the, the police militarization stuff you see. Right. And they have essentially bribed state and local police departments into adopting federal policing priorities, which usually has to do with the war on drugs. And as a result, you have this intertwining of state, local, and federal law enforcement to the point that in a lot of areas, it's they're almost indistinguishable, indistinguishable from each other. And so a lot of the policies for surveillance that are going on at the federal level, again, are assisted by state and local law enforcement. And, it, and it's kind of a it's kind of an ugly carrot and well, not even a carrot and stick. It's really more of a carrot and, and then have some more carrot kind of scenario. So <laughs> the federal government will come in and they'll say, hey, local police department. We'll give you funding to get these really cool Stingray devices where you can track cell phones and even download their uh, content and listen in on conversations. We'll give these – and you keep this secret on the download. We'll give you the money for it. And then you gather up information, and then you can share it with us. And they have this whole thing. It's called the information sharing environment. It's this – you can look it up. It's actually – you know, there's stuff about it online. But it's this this – melding of state and local and federal resources to share data and information. So you probably heard of fusion centers. That's mm-hmm. part of this whole ISC. The fusion centers, you know, you get state cops and local cops and and the feds and they all hang out in these these fusion centers and spy on us and then share the data back and forth. So when you start limiting surveillance even at your local level, you're actually having an, an impact on the federal surveillance state. One of the best examples is in the realm of automatic license plate readers, which most people are probably familiar with. A lot of police departments have automatic license plate readers. Now, in fact, I was at my mom's not too long ago. She lives in a little town in Florida called Fernandina Beach. You know, there's like 30,000 people, and their police department has automatic license plate readers. It's like, what? <laughs> So these things, they, they do exactly what it says. They read your license plate. They take that data. They store it in a system with the, with the uh, geomarker that shows exactly where you were. And, you know, they can use these things. There's, there's certainly legitimate uses for them. You can uh, enter a car. You know, if a stolen vehicle, you can enter that plate into the system, and it'll ping on them. Or if you have a traffic ticket or whatever. But what has been happening, and the Wall Street Journal actually broke this news uh, a few years ago, the DEA has been creating a database full of license plate information. And it's just this huge thing. And I got the license plate, and they'll say, oh, this, it was, this vehicle was at this point at this date, and it was at this point in this date. And they can actually create grids that show kind of how these vehicles travel. And almost all of this data was gathered through state and local law enforcement because they get the data, and DEA comes along and says, hey, y'all got license plate data? And, oh, yeah, we do. Here, have it. So what we've been – really pushing is to put limits on surveillance technology <coughs> excuse me and to put limits on data sharing so that this kind of information doesn't end up in these federal data systems it's a really simple concept if there's no data there ain't nothing to share so if you require uh, a warrant to utilize a license plate reader or a stingray or if at the least you say this information cannot be shared. You know, it has to be destroyed within three days. And putting restrictions on this data is huge in limiting 
the uh, the availability of data that's going into the surveillance state. So you'll see a lot of reporting on the Tenth Amendment Center re- relating to license plate readers, stingrays, and drones, because those are kind of the three big uh, programs that the federal government is kind of funding through all of these various channels and then doing this information sharing. A second really cool thing, this is my favorite thing that the Tenth Amendment Center has ever done. Uh, back when Snowden started coming out with the revelations, we started, you know, we sat down, we had a meeting, we're like, okay, we've got this huge surveillance state, they're doing all of this warrants, warrantless surveillance. What could we do at the state and local level to impact the NSA? And at first, it's kind of like, well, you know, nothing. It's the NSA. It's like this federal thing, right? Right. That's that's kind of my initial reaction. Like, right. what, what can the states really do with, with something that massive? Exactly. So we started doing some research, and we found out that back in the – I think it was back in the 90s, actually, the – NSA started running into a power grid problem in Maryland. Like they were pulling too much power for the power grid because you know, <laughs> it takes a lot of power to operate a spy computer. So they started expanding facilities into new areas. And, and one of the biggest and probably one that some people have actually heard of is this big data storage facility in Bluffdale, Utah. Right, yeah. So huge facility out there. And it uses like – I want to say 1.6 million gallons of water a day in order to cool all these computers because, again, it takes a lot of water and cooling to store you know, everybody's phone conversations and emails and all of this stuff that they're, that they're putting in these uh, – storing away in these computers. And so where do they get the water? Well, they get the water from the city of Bluffdale. And as we've already talked about, the federal government cannot force a state or a local entity to – supply resources or personnel for any federal purpose. Mm-hmm. So theoretically, the city of Bluffdale could say, you know what, NSA, you're engaged in warrantless surveillance. As long as you're engaged in warrantless surveillance, we're not selling you any water. <laughs> so we actually came up with a piece of legislation based on this, and, and we have, a, we have a, a kind of a sister organization that we kind of sprung off of the 10th Amendment Center called Off Now, and it's all devoted to this this strategy of turning off resources to the NSA, turn off the water in Bluffdale, Utah. Now, the problem is, is that that takes a lot of guts, and uh, unfortunately, politicians don't tend to be very gutsy people, but um, there actually are bills that are pending in Vermont and Michigan this year that would deny resources to the NSA. Now, those states don't happen to have uh, facilities in them, but by setting the stage, it would at least keep them from probably wanting to move there. So, uh, we're going to continue to push this uh, this strategy and uh, you know try to figure out new ways to to implement it. And I think it's a powerful way that we could very easily uh, at least get their attention. And and we're going to have to do something. You know, you mentioned the the whole the whole FISA thing. I think when we were talking before we uh, before we went on the air. Mm-hmm. You know, just uh, just last week, while everybody was having a conniption about shithole countries, uh, <laughs> the House very quietly reauthorized FISA, which is the foreign surveillance uh, uh, framework. And through this foreign, it's, they call it foreign surveillance, foreign surveillance. But through this foreign, network, yeah. exactly, they pull in all kinds of Amer- data on Americans, uh, phones, emails, computer stuff. So they passed this. They voted down an amendment to the bill that would have put some more privacy protections in place and required them to get an actual real warrant before they got American information. Oh, we can't do that. And, and 
this is this is one of my pet peeves about politics. You know, everybody's having a conniption about Trump's tweets and what nasty thing he said. And meanwhile, stuff like this is going on. Everybody's like, eh, whatever. Yeah, who cares so, if the government yeah. spies on us? So we need to do something at the state level, at the local level, because the Congress is not going to do it. I mean, Frank Church warned us in 1975 that the NSA had the potential for total tyranny. He said this in 75, before widespread access to the internet, before we were all using email, before we all had cell phones. If it had the potential for total tyranny in 1975, what are we looking at now? And yet, here we are 40 years later, Senator Church warned us, and yet Congress hasn't done thing one to fix the problem. So once again, we have a complete failure of the uh, policymakers in Washington, D.C. to do the right thing. So if they're not going to do the right thing, maybe we can put some pressure on uh, the folks at our state level and get them to do the right thing. What I really what I really like about what you basically just outlined is it does essentially what the federal government always threatens to do if they don't enforce certain laws. If, if they'll talk about cutting funding or what have you. And it basically throws it back into their face. Like, if you're going to threaten us with this, then we'll just, you know, not supply you with any resources. And I think that is ironic <laughs> that that's, that's the uh, that's that's the uh, byproduct of that and it's a beautiful strategy and here's the thing you know people will say oh yeah mike that's a great idea you know but it'll never work because the federal government will just come take the water right and and i understand that that kind of that thought process i mean it does seem like a big deal you turn off the nsa's water i am sure they're not going to sit back and just go oh okay well, well guess we'll close i don't know <laughs> what they'll do but here's the fact uh I don't know how many of of your listeners have ever heard of Yucca Mountain, but it's in Nevada. And uh, long story short, they decided they were going to put a nuclear waste dump on Yucca Mountain, which happens to be in an earthquake zone. So not the best place to put nuclear no, waste. No, you know, in the infinite wisdom of our federal government, yeah. they decided we're going to put this nuclear waste on Yucca Mountain. And <laughs> the state of Utah fought it and fought it and fought it. They fought it in Congress, and, and it kept moving forward and moving forward. So when they actually got to the point where they were trying to build the facility on Yucca Mountain, they had to get water permits from the state of Utah in order to drill these uh, – drill these wells. And the state of Nevada said, you know what? We're not going to give you permits for the water. And it went to federal court and the judge, shock of all shock, actually ruled in favor of the state. And it said, this is Utah or this is the state of Nevada's water. State of Nevada can direct its water to be used however it wants to. Sorry, if they're not going to give you the permits, you're not getting the permits. And to this day, there is no nuclear waste facility on Yucca Mountain because the uh, state refused to give them the water. So, you know, this has actually worked in real life. So it's not as far fetched as people might think. Uh, well, Mike, this has been very fun and very uh, educational, I think. Um, I've, I've certainly learned a lot, and I, I hope uh, everyone who is listening here. Uh, has learned a lot. Where can people find you and where can people find the 10th Amendment Center online and on social media? All right. Like I said uh, earlier in the show, 10thamendmentcenter.com and 10th is all spelled out. And uh, when you get to the homepage, you'll see our, our feature articles are down toward the bottom. And those are kind of the kind of bigger things that are going on. Uh, I highly encourage people to check out the blog because that's where you'll start to see all of these various laws that are in, uh, that are being pushed forward in various state legislatures. And you'll see that we're working on uh, all kinds of issues. Surveillance and marijuana are two we talked about. We're also, we also do a lot of stuff with uh, guns mm-hmm. and 
starting to move more into ways to resist the FDA and the uh, the various ways that they enforce federal mandates on food. So kind of the food sovereignty movement, raw milk, uh, we're into sound money where states, by encouraging the use of gold and silver, can open the door for competition with uh, the Federal Reserve's monopoly on money. So there's all kinds of different ways we're, we're working on applying this uh, this nullification strategy of non-cooperation. So please check that out. And uh, you'll also see uh, on there we've got model legislation. So if you're interested in a policy area and you think it's something that might work in your state, get that model legislation, call your state rep, call your state senator and say, hey, consider introducing this. And again, I guarantee you, your state and local rep will be much more responsive to your phone call than your congressman ever will. Right. So uh, so that's that's one place to go. If you want to check out some of the stuff that I'm doing, uh, I have my own website, michaelmeharry.com, and uh, I have a Constitution 101 section on there for people who are interested in learning more about the various clauses of what, you know, we talked about the supremacy clause. I actually dig in there in depth and, and give all of the founding era quotes that explain what that means. Uh, I get into necessary and proper, general welfare, uh, you know, was the United States formed as one nation or was it a, uh, a union of independent states? You know, all those things are on that Constitution 101. And I post articles there from time to time. And I used to have a podcast that I kind of have, have let go, uh, at least <laughs> temporarily. But there's 99, 99 episodes there if you want to check out my, my old podcast. So michaelmeharry.com. All right, and we'll link um, we'll link all those places in the show notes, and uh, be sure to to get it out. Uh, Mike, I, I really really appreciate your time. Uh, thank you for for joining the program. It was absolutely my pleasure, and I need to. I almost forgot the most important thing. I have a book. If you're interested oh, in yes, nullification, please. you need to you need to buy my book. It's called Our Last Hope: Rediscovering the Lost Path to Liberty. Uh, you can find it on my website. You can also find it on Amazon. And uh, it actually goes in depth on the historical, philosophical, and moral case for nullification. And I actually get a little bit more into, you know, you're talking about, oh, we'll have chaos. I actually address that with a really cool analogy. So I'm not going to tell you have to buy the book. <laughs> Go read it so, if you want to. Check that out. And, and I really appreciate having me on. It's been it's been a lot of fun, and I've enjoyed it. All right, thank you. And um, of course, if if uh, you want to. Stay up to date. Be sure to subscribe to Maliberty on iTunes. Um, follow us on Twitter at Maliberty and follow me on Twitter at Caleb Franz. And until next week, we'll see you. <laughs>